I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119, verses 105 to 112. This is the last sermon I'll do on Psalm 119. Uh, You'll notice that it's obviously not finished yet, but I do invite you, if you are interested in studying the whole psalm, I, I know of no better concise book than Dr. Boyce's Living by the Book. And um, if you were to read that text, you'd notice that a lot of this morning's sermon comes from that, but the book covers the whole psalm, and it would be very helpful for you in your uh, growth in the Word. Well, this morning we'll look at verse 105 to 112. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. For they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Well, Father, we ask now as we once again consider Psalm 119 that your spirit would direct us to have understanding of your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've mentioned um, in this kind of shortened series on Psalm 119 that in the midst of suffering, that's what the psalmist was going through, in the midst of suffering that the worth of Scripture is fully disclosed to our hearts and discovered. We know something as believers of it theoretically. We know that it is true truth apart from how we relate to it. It is true. We know it comes from God for our benefit, but it's not until we're in this dense and heavy darkness of some type of struggle that the light of Scripture shines brightly in our souls. And so we need to remember that Psalm 119 is more than a doctrinal dissertation on the Word of God. However, it's not less than that. You see, throughout our series, we have come across several attributes of the Word of God. We, we have learned that the Bible is divinely inspired, that it's authoritative, that it's inerrant, that it's infallible. We've learned that it's sufficient and powerful. We've learned that when the Word speaks to us, God is speaking. When the Word promises us something, God is promising. When the Word threatens, it's God who threatens. When the Scripture is read and it's preached, it's as if Christ Himself were standing before you proclaiming the Word of God. Not because I'm Christ or nothing to do with me. It's because of the Word. It is His Word. This is why, by the way, throughout the Bible, you read things like the Scripture says, or Moses says, or David says, or God says. They're used interchangeably because the Word of God is both man's Word and God's Word. Peter tells us, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. 
And so Scripture, the Word of God, is the divinely inspired revelation of God. It's, it's breathed out by God. And it's this multi-faceted splendor of the Word that the psalmist is celebrating here in Psalm 119. And, and, and he's doing that, but he's doing it in the context of suffering and struggle. Well, last week we learned that the Word of God brings comfort in the midst of our affliction. And this week's stanza, we discover that it's not only comfort that we find when we turn to the Word in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our, our affliction, we also find clarity, the clarity of the Word. Uh, theologians call this the perspicuity of Scripture. It's that attribute that's focused on here in verses 105 to 112. Now, in my opening sermon, I, I spoke to you and I focused on the sufficiency of Scripture, a vital, important attribute of the Word, the, the fact that everything we need to know for faith and practice is found in the Bible. We don't need to go beyond the Scripture to know how to live the Christian life. Everything you need to know to be saved and live a life glorifying to God is found in Scripture. That's what sufficiency of Scripture means. But the Scripture is not only sufficient, it's clear. Our confession says it this way, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear. So it starts out by saying not everything's clear, yet those things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or the other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means of studying, may attain to an, unto a sufficient understanding of them. And, and I quote that because when the, when the confession talks about the Word of God and says that it's clear and it makes this statement, it, it gives scriptural proofs for it. And the scriptural proof it gives here is Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my, my, my path, as well as Psalm 119, verse 130. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And so, what's it saying? Everything in Scripture is not perfectly clear. We just had a conference not too long ago on Revelation and the end times, and not everybody agreed on that. It's not perfectly clear on that issue, but everything you and I need to know for salvation, that is, to be saved from our sin, to be justified all the way to our glorification, everything we need to know for our salvation is taught clearly somewhere in the Bible. And, and, and through the illumination of the Holy Spirit and the proper use of study tools and pastors and teachers that God has given us, we can ascertain its meaning, its true meaning. That's what the confession teaches. But more importantly, obviously, it's what the Bible teaches. And Psalm 119, particularly verse 105, makes that point clear. And so the nature of the Word of God and the purpose of God in giving the Scripture is to be a lamp and a light, a lamp to keep us from stumbling and a light to guide us on our path. See, the Word of God was not given to obscure. It's true of Revelation. It's not a cover-up. It's a revelation. 
the book of Revelation, but it's true of the whole Bible. It, it's meant to, uh, uh, to expose. And the moment that we make that statement, we say, well, pastor, you tell me that it's clear, but why do we argue so much on so many different doctrines? I mean, we, we disagree. Not only within, I mean, definitely it's true outside the church. There's all different denominations that have different beliefs, but even in the church, we disagree. And so if it's clear, how come we keep on arguing? Well, let me, let me respond in two ways. First, the issue we need to understand is not the clarity of Scripture. It, it's, it's our hearts. That's the main issue. It's not that Scripture is unclear. It's that we're usually unwilling to submit to its teaching. See, rather than come under the Word of God, uh, we kind of lord over it and, and try to make it fit our system of thought. The point is we don't often like what it teaches us, so we work hard to explain it away. Paul tells us these things, the doctrine and teaching of the Word of God, are spiritually discerned. Um, and, and, and he is not able, a natural person is not able, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And, and so the point is, that the Scripture is clear, and we must come humbly before it in an attitude of prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to help us and allow the plain and clear teaching of the Word to revise our thinking, to change the way we think, not change what the Scripture says. Now, second reason, uh, way of answering is to say we need to remember that there are many things that we all agree on. I would, I would argue that probably more than what we disagree on, at least in our church, some things may be debatable, you'd say, but then that's because of our sinfulness, not because of the clarity of Scripture. The Bible is clear that it teaches, it, it is the Word of God. It, it teaches that. We believe in the Trinity. The Bible is clear that God is one and yet three, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in creation. The Bible teaches that God created out of nothing. We believe in the deity of Christ. Uh, we believe in the sinfulness and depravity of man. We believe that Christ came as a substitute. The Bible clearly teaches these things and died for our sins, that he rose again from the dead. We believe there's only one way of salvation, that the Holy Spirit's the only way, uh, the only work that we need to regenerate our hearts. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, Christ's return, a future judgment. We believe, Scripture teaches, that we'll spend an eternity with Christ in heaven as believers and non-believers will spend an eternity in hell. Not everybody likes those teachings, but they're clear in Scripture. And so when it comes to many of these doctrines, our problem is not that they're hard to understand and embraced, but that we don't want to understand them and we don't want to take the time to learn them. Let me give you one more example. Um, the complete sovereignty of God over salvation what do I mean? Well, people struggle with this. You say that God chooses who's going, to, who's going to be saved and who's not, and they say, well, that's not fair. It makes us just puppets, they say, or, 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 or probably one of the worst statements, God would never violate my free will as if you're God. And so people deny the complete sovereignty of God over salvation. They don't like how it makes them feel like that, that they don't have control, that they don't have free will. But Scripture 
teaches this in first in John one, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, well they believed, you're right, you believed. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How were they born? Of God, not not their own will, he says. John six forty four, no man can come to me. Jesus says, that is Jesus, except that the Father has sent me, uh, which has sent me to draw him. No one's going to come to me unless the Father draw him. How are you going to come to Jesus? You can do it on your own? No, you can't. The Father must draw him. Romans 8, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Who did it? God did. He did it all. One last verse, Romans 9. We read that Paul said, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I'll decide who I have mercy on. Nothing else will. So that it, then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. That is the complete sovereignty of God over salvation, on who gets saved. And he hardens whomever he wills. God makes that decision. You do not. You're accountable to God. And if he changes your heart, you will believe. And he calls you to believe. But you can't believe unless he's chose you to believe. And then you say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Why does he still find fault? Why why would God choose some and not others and then find fault? That's a good question. Um, uh, if we can't resist his will, then, then how can he find fault? And you would say, well, Pastor, if that's what you teach, that's, what I, uh, that's the struggle I have. Well, Paul answered that because when he taught the complete sovereignty of God over salvation, people struggled with it back then. And he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Because I believe in a full sovereignty of God over salvation, he has on mercy who he has mercy, and he has compassion on whom he has compassion. He chooses some and not others out of his own good will. You will say to me, why do you still find fault? And this is how Paul replies. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You may not like it. I may not like it. It doesn't matter. It is God who determines. It is God who is sovereign. People don't like the doctrine of predestination or election or effectual calling, but it's what the Scripture clearly teaches. It does not matter how many people debate it. People don't like that God holds them accountable for their sin. But it's what the Scripture clearly teaches. People don't like that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the only way to be saved. But it's what the Scripture teaches. People don't like that God will someday pour out his wrath on those he did not choose. Go up to just about anybody and just explain your biblical worldview to them, and they'll think you're crazy. If not more, I want you arrested 
And, and then you come to church in some churches and they, well, we got we to gotta, we gotta work with this. We got to figure out a way and we want to accommodate and we want to change what the word says because it offends us. It's God's word. It's going to offend our puny minds. In any case, we believe the Bible is clear, but that's not all we believe. It's not only clear in its doctrinal teachings, it's, it's clarifying, you could say. And that's what we read in verse 105. When the psalmist says in verse 105 that the word is a lamp and a light, he's implying that he's, he's, he's walking on a dark path. And, 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 and it's not a metaphorical darkness. It's a, it's a real darkness. He's severely afflicted, says verse 107. He holds his own life in his hands continually. That's verse 109. He's, he's constantly exposed to the possibility of death and danger. The wicked have laid a snare for him, says verse 110. There are evil people out there trying to trap him, trying to trip him up. And so the darkness is threatening, but there's this light to guide him through. I mean, I just talked about how the world today, you know, they're they're threatening. They're threatening. They hate our teachings. And, and, And if we're like the psalmist here, well, there's a light to guide us through. The image is obvious. Maybe you've had this experience. You've tried to get up in the middle of the night to go get a drink of water. And you say, I've done this a thousand times. I can walk. I can figure out how to walk in the darkness. My, my, my bedroom's got the, the blackout curtains. My wife works the night shift, so she sleeps during the day. It's black and dark. And you go walking and say, I can do this on my own. And you walk forward and you hit that drawer you forgot to close. And it knocks the lamp on the floor that's obviously useless to you because you didn't turn it on. And then you get hurt. What would have happened if you just turned on the light? Would you have run into the drawer? I mean, maybe, but, but you get the point. No, the lamp wouldn't have been broke. You would have turned it on. You would have been able to see where you're going, and, 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 and you would have had the light to guide you through <laughs> the treacheries of the dark, however the illustration you want to end it. Well, what would happen if, if, if we followed the Word of God and allowed it to be our light and our path. Well, that's what the psalmist is talking about. When darkness threatens, we need to remember that, that there is a light. We don't go at it alone. We don't try to, to wade our through the darkness. We, we have a light and a lamp available that can clarify our way. And according to Dr. Boyce, There are seven things that are clarified by the light and lamp of God's Word, and I'm going to quickly walk through them. First, the Word of God uh, clarifies the way we should live. The way we should live, verse 105, your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, that's, that, uh, it's a path. It's a way of life. It's, it's how we should live our lives is what the psalmist means. We don't know how to live our lives. We didn't create ourselves. Uh, the Bible shines on, on, uh, on us, the path before us to expose the wrong ways and provide the right ways. That's what we're getting at here. It shows us the things we should prioritize and, and, and should govern how we think and how we act. Not, not the world's whims, not this month's new teaching about, about all these crazy things. It's, it's the Word. We go back to the Word and say, okay, well, my society tells me this, this, and this, but the Word tells me this. I follow the Word. It clarifies. It makes it clear. That's how I should walk. 
It, it, it doesn't clarify everything. It doesn't tell you what job to take. It does tell you how to live godly, whatever job you take, but it doesn't tell you what job to take, but it, it clarifies, and that leads to the second point. Not only it clarifies how to go about life, it, it clarifies righteous behavior. What does it mean to be righteous? Verse 106, I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. He's, he's concerned with living right, with righteous actions. We need the, the Word of God to tell us what is right and what is wrong. And often, what we think is okay, the Bible says is wrong. And, and sometimes the things we say, no, you can't do that, the Bible doesn't tell us that's wrong. But, but the point is we need a word from God to say that is right and that is wrong. Well, you know, we live in 2023, not back in Bible times. Well, God doesn't change. <laughs> it, it just, it's silly. He said, this is right and this is wrong. And you know when that's right and wrong? Always. Because he said it. There's nuance. There's different things that we have to look at and study. But I'm talking about the things that are right and wrong. But we live in a world where goodness is called evil and evil is called goodness. And the Bible says, no, let me clarify for you the issue and show you how to walk through that darkness. And so when the road ahead is foggy, it presents principles to live by, and so the word clarifies righteous behavior. Third, the reasons for suffering is clarified in the word. 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. I have suffered much is another translation in verse 107. Give me life according to your word. The Bible can help us by explaining the various reasons for suffering. Uh, besides just the common ones, you know, why this person gets sick and that person doesn't, or vice versa, this person's in a car accident. It's just common suffering because we live in a sinful, fallen world. But there are other reasons for suffering, and the Bible clarifies this. Some suffering is corrective. The psalmist says in, one, in verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. You know, I, I, I wasn't obeying, and you punished me, I endured suffering, I endured affliction, and that affliction allowed me to correct my ways. So some suffering is corrective. Uh, some suffering is constructive. It's used by God to sharpen our skills, to develop our character. Paul says suffering produces perseverance. And so we go through the suffering because God wants us to, to grow in our perseverance, for example. Some suffering is simply for the glory of God. You know, the afflictions of the man born blind. Jesus explained that he had been suffering not because of his parents' sins nor his own sins. The reason this man was born blind is that the work of God might be displayed in his life. That is, suffering is for the glory of God. And so some, some of your suffering may be for the glory of God. It may be for your testing. There are other reasons the Scripture gives for suffering, but the point is clear. It's not random. And, and, and in our world, we think it's random. Even as Christians, sometimes we wonder, why me? Why did this happen? We, we may not have an answer, but God does. Uh, and, and it has its purpose, and the Word of God can shed light on it. It may not tell us exactly, and we want to be very careful of cause and effect. Oh, that, you went through that because of this. But the Scripture can shed light on it. Nothing happens randomly. 
is one of the ways it sheds lights on it because the scripture is clear. God has ordained all that has come to pass, everything. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, Romans 11.36. And so, it clarifies suffering. Our loving, caring, good, heavenly Father has preordained our suffering for his purpose. Let's move on. Fourth, right worship is clarified by the word. Look at verse 108. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Three things were taught here about worship, required for worship praise, prayer, and preaching. Accept my free will offerings, obviously, of praise, obviously, speaks of praise, but it also speaks to prayer. I mean, he's literally praying that to God. And he is praying to God that the Lord will teach him the word. And, and so praise, prayer, and preaching or teaching ought to be the main function of the church. One theologian says, when we come to the church, first and foremost, we should be taught the Bible. God has spoken in the Bible. It's in the Bible that he continues to speak. There is nothing more important for Christian growth and the health of the church than sound Bible teaching. We need to learn the word, but it's not only the word. We should also praise God. The NIV translates this, accept, O Lord, the willing praise of my mouth. Praise that is acceptable to God. God's clarifying something about what happens in the worship service. Praise that is acceptable to God is verbal. It's verbal. See, it's not enough to come in and listen to the music. There are times we meditate and listen, but when we're singing our hymns and praise songs, we, we, we must participate. It's verbal. I know that a lot of you can't sing. I, 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 I can't sing that well either. God didn't say, sing if you sing well and zip it if you don't. He says, sing to me. It's verbal because we're singing to him and, as it were, we're singing to one another, confirming the promises of the songs. And so it's verbal. And so we need to remember that. If we want to worship God correctly, you must sing out. You must pray, declare his praise with your mouth. And then finally, we should also pray. How sad it is that you can go to churches today. And, and there won't be a pastoral prayer. There won't be any prayer, maybe a prayer before the offering because, well, we need the money. But, and then at the end of the sermon, a short little prayer, but no substantive pastoral prayer. It's a shame. How do you expect to worship when you don't pray? Prayer, praise, and preaching. And so it clarifies the Word of God, proper worship. Fifth, the dangers of this life are clarified. Verse 109, I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. He's not talking here of just speaking of physical danger. He's talking of spiritual dangers, like falling into sin and falling away from God. If you look at verse 109, it combines these two. When he speaks of holding his life in his hand, he, he's, he's expressing this idea of losing his life. Uh, but then he adds, I do not forget your law. He's expressing the greater danger of abandoning God in his word. 
Yeah, I can lose my life. I'm being, I'm being threatened by those who oppose your word. But more importantly, Lord, there's this great danger that I may, because of that suffering or for whatever other reason, I may abandon your word and begin to live like the world around me. And I'm worried about that, Lord. And so the word of God clarifies what our greatest danger in it is. And our greatest danger is sin. It's not our enemies. It's not the opposing political party. It's sin. And so Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's not being literal, but it shows you how important it is to rid yourself of sin. The true danger is falling into sin. And so Scripture clarifies that. Because you know and I know, left to our own, we wouldn't think that at all. Look at the world around us. Yeah, do what you want. Be who you want to be. Basically, they're saying, you're God. Act, do as you feel. And we don't think think there's any consequences. And the Bible clarifies for us, I may not feel that. I, I may not think that, but it's reality because God said it. Six, who your enemies are is clarified. The wicked have laid a snare for me. He understood that the wicked were his enemies. They were trying to kill him. And if we're trying to live for Christ, we're going to have similar experiences I, I, today especially, and it, it only get worse. Ungodly people will also set snares for us because they hate us and the Lord we're serving. You know, there are a lot of people that know me, um, and, and they may think I'm a swell guy. They just get to know me. You know, I could be a little funny. I'm nice to them. Then let them ask me my beliefs about things. And I tell them kindly what I believe. And then these people hate me. Like you're a villain. A villain. Why? Because they, they hate God's word and, and you're living for it. And so scripture clarifies that our greatest danger is not necessarily them laying uh, uh, snares, us giving into that. And then our other greatest danger are those who would push us and, and, and threaten us. But even then, that's not the greatest danger uh, because it's not just physical enemies. When we read of the wicked who laid a snare, we should think of our greatest enemy, the devil. And, and, and Scripture clarifies uh, for us who he is. He's not the little, you know, the cartoon devil, the red devil, uh, you know, and, with the horns. Uh, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, the Bible tells us. Oh, that's good to know. Um, and, and then Matthew 13 says, look, he's your enemy. He's crafty. That's important to know, Genesis 3. He's the father of lies. If he speaks, it's going to be a lie, John 8. And he is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8. And so if we're going to triumph over Satan, we need to understand and know everything the Bible says about him and his ways. For example, Satan can only be at one place at one time. He's not God. He's not omniscient. You know, people say, you know, it was tough last night. I was doing battle with Satan. I don't think Satan knows who you are. I I think he may have bigger problems. He has demons (laughs) that can attack you. But, but, But he's powerful. He can only be at one place at a time. But this is another truth we need to know. And the Scripture clarifies this. He's defeated. He has been defeated by the blood of the Lamb. 
And so it is a great battle that we face because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. But our enemy has been defeated by the blood of the lamb. Scripture clarifies that. Our greatest battle is spiritual, and the answer is Christ's blood. Seventh, the believer's true heritage is clarified by the word. Your testimony, verse 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. The NSB says, my inheritance. This is what he's looking forward to. This is what he's looking to. Well, what is amazing, he's not seeking some reward. He, he's not seeking a word of praise from God. His heritage, he says, his inter- eternal inheritance is what something that he already possesses. It's the word of God. He says it. Your testimonies are my inheritance. Your testimonies are my heritage forever. It's a remarkable statement. He, he could say that statement, though, because he knew God's word would never, ever pass away. There was stability there. Jesus says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, Matthew 24. Our houses will pass away. Our bank accounts will pass away. Our earthly achievements will pass away. Our reputation will pass away. Our health will pass away, but only the word of God will not pass away. And so it makes perfect sense that the psalmist would fix his mind in the midst of his struggles on God's Word, and he would treasure it. But it's even more than that. See, he could speak this way about God's testimonies and God's Word because it's who God is. Remember, Scripture is God-breathed. And, 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 and so when the writer says that God's testimonies are his inheritance forever, what he's actually getting at is God is my inheritance forever. God is my heritage forever. There's nothing better than God. So he doesn't look anywhere else. There's nowhere else to look. God is his heritage. And so for this reason... Even in the midst of his trials, even in the midst of the darkness that, that seemed to weigh heavy upon him, even in the, in the face of those who were seeking to kill him, and, and the temptations from sin and, and turning away from God, in all that, he could have joy in his heart because he focused on God and his word. That's the value of the scripture. Well, let me close. Uh, our whole study on Psalm 19 by reminding us that it, when, when it says about the Word of God, it, it is true of Jesus, right? See, Christ is not only sufficient. We talked about that. He's sufficient for all our needs like the Word. But, but Christ also clarifies. He clarifies. He is the light. It, 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 I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There's the light you need. He's our guide, leading us to the heavenly Father. Jesus answered, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the path to the Father. He clarifies that. That's how we get to the Father. He is our inheritance. He is our joy. These things I have spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full, John 15, 11. 
See, the greatest possession we have is the Word, because the greatest possession we have in the Word is God Himself. And the greatest possession we have because of the Word and because of God is Jesus Christ, who Himself is God. And so the greatest thing you have is your union with Jesus. It's your connection with Jesus. It's it's knowing Jesus. And where do you learn about Jesus but in his word? And so when you spend time memorizing, when you spend time studying it, when you spend time meditating upon it, maybe wrestling with it, maybe arguing a little with someone over what it means, when you do all that, don't miss out on the greatest treasure that's to be found. Jesus Christ. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, we are guided, we are led on the path to embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He's there in all his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it clarifies for us how we should live. And we thank you that it points us to our only Savior and our only hope, Jesus Christ. Amen.